a personal moment. Did you notice a few moments ago when we asked the young people to come forward so we could pray over them, our worship team disappeared? <laughs> That's a moment of nervousness from our perspective. Observation number two is when we asked the young people to come to the front so we could pray for them, Daniel and Jordan were still on the platform. <laughs> I've never thought of you as anything but young. <laughs> Today is a moment. <laughs> I will never forget this moment. <laughs> Real quick, think of two words, two adjectives. Those are things that describe nouns, by the way. Nouns are person, place, or thing. Think of two adjectives to describe what most people are feeling in these days. 30 seconds. Turn to the person next to you, unless they're not wearing a mask, and tell them... <laughs> Tell them what those two words would be. Two words to describe what most people are feeling most of the time these days. Go. All right, some of you are still wondering, what's an adjective again? <laughs> How many of you heard words like confused, restless, anxious, afraid, nervous, angry, divided, critical, sensitive? How many of you heard words like this? These are the way that we describe our lives today. In other words, I think we are like the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. We've been forced by circumstances to leave what we once believed in, what was familiar and nailed down to us, and we've been forced by those circumstances to begin a journey. And the road to Emmaus is a seven-mile stretch from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's this space in between what you once believed and can't any longer. Behind you is the stuff that held you to, this, to, to, the, to the ground. It anchored you. And ahead of you, it feels like there's a bunch of promises that God has made, but for the life of you, you can't figure out the relevance of them. In part, it's because what we've lost, not once or twice, but so consistently, uh, has not really allowed us to get our legs under us again before the next thing happens. And as life moves at an accelerated pace, we haven't found time to find ourselves or to lament. And so it feels to me, at least like the two travelers, we're on the road to Emmaus. And I said last week that Jesus comes up behind us and he asks what are you talking about as you walk along? And what we discover on this road of uncertainty is that everything has changed and we're still living on Friday. It's 
Sunday. It's the third day. Christ has risen. Christ is present right behind us. And Christ is active. Even when it seems to us that he's not. And so the road to Emmaus really is this journey in between verse 16 and verse 31. From the moment they see him, but they can't recognize him, to the end of the journey when they recognize him and he suddenly vanishes from their sight. Do you see it? So we go from looking at him with our eyes, but not knowing it is him, to knowing it is him, even though we cannot see him with our eyes. This seems to be a crucial journey for every Christian. How do we discern the presence of Christ at a time when he has vanished from our sight? You there? One of those ways we said last week was with the right companions and the right conversations. The conversation has all been about four or five different things because the companions that we keep are all about four or five different things. We can't get into another lane of conversation. Watch what happens next. What are you, what words are you exchanging as you walk along? You must be the only one who doesn't know the things that have happened in Jerusalem in these days. What sort of things? Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was mighty in power and indeed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over. And they crucified him. We had hoped he was the one to redeem us. But what's more, this is the third day. <laughs> That's right, it is. That all of this has happened and our women have confused us. They went to the tomb and they found that the tomb was empty and he was not there. They spoke of a vision of angels telling them that he was alive. So our companions ran themselves to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, except him they did not see. Watch what happens. How foolish and slow of heart to believe all that was written in the prophets. Did not the Messiah have to suffer and then enter his glory? Watch the next verse 27. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them things pertaining to himself in all of the scriptures. And when he does this, they later recognize it as the moment their hearts started to burn. 
Later they look back and say, did not our hearts burn within us? Were not our hearts on fire when he opened the scriptures to us and explained to us what was happening in the scriptures? In other words, their eyes were opened as the scriptures were opened. To open the scripture is to open the eyes so one learns to see the presence of Christ even though you cannot see him with your eyes. Christ is present when we are in the midst of companions who know the scripture and they know how to read it. We have all known people that knew what was written, but they didn't know how to read it. These people were at best boring, and at worst, they were hurtful. They were dogmatists, they were moralists, they were legalists, they were activists. They selected a verse or two from the scripture and then used that as a club or a sword or a way to manipulate their audience. And the way we know that they misused it was because it didn't create what the psalmist said would happen when the law was read. The word of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, making wise the simple, bringing joy to the heart. Bringing light to the eyes. Whenever the scripture is read by companions who read it well, mm, it revives the heart. We get wise. We can discern what is happening. It brings a surge of joy into our spirits, not condemnation and shame. And it brings a light and an insight to our eyes. Would to God the church had people who didn't just know what was written, they knew how to read it. Why this is important is because I believe as Jesus starts talking with the scriptures, he is modeling how the scriptures should be read. I got to be careful now because this is a university and there's all sorts of Bible geeks in the audience. You're thinking, watch it, watch it. Remember, if you want to send an email... Jordan.rife at. <laughs> Let me say it one more time. Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them things pertaining to himself in all the scriptures few observations. 
The scriptures are to be read as a whole, not as a random collection of verses with laws and promises. Whenever you hear somebody lift something and just cite it, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and make you, hmm, there it is, move on. It's not that we're wrong, it's that we're shallow. We must locate what is happening in the whole of Scripture. Because when that happens, we can find ourselves in the story. And when we find ourselves in the story, that same verse which we once just put over the door pops with meaning because we are the characters to whom it was written. The circumstances that we're facing right now are serious, but they'll change in a year or two. And so they're just props. Six months from now, it'll be another set of circumstances. But if we can find ourselves in the story that God is telling us, then all of a sudden these particulars take on new meaning. Otherwise, I think we're missing the forest for the trees. Pause. Now you can see why um, I struggle with the evangelical gospel. Because the truth is, people, the way it is told in most evangelical churches, Jesus died and then rose again. Seek forgiveness and try harder. Doesn't need the Old Testament. The way you know that your gospel is too small is by asking yourself, does it even need the Old Testament? If you can tell the gospel without thinking of the Old Testament, your gospel is too small. Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he spoke of things pertaining to himself in all of the scripture. Second observation. Jesus is the plot. The gospel, the narrative, our story, this plot that we're living into goes all the way back to the beginning of time, works itself through the books of Moses into the prophets. And Jesus is always the point. This doesn't mean you can read Jesus into everything in the Old Testament, but it does mean everything in the Old Testament flows steadily towards the Word, which is Jesus Christ. In the, and then, after Christ, everything in history flows out of Christ. So for the first few thousand years, depending on your intellectual theories, everything flows toward Jesus. And then after that, everything flows out of Jesus. In other words, since Jesus, nothing much has happened. Once you understand the plot and how it moves 
toward the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, you have the lens for understanding the gospel. Church, the gospel is your story. Not the economy, not the elections, not the pandemic, not your sexuality, not your gender, not any particular thing about you. This is his story, not yours. But you're in it. You're in it. <laughs> and when you find yourself in God's story, your life gets larger and your heart gets bigger and you get a new light in your eyes and you get a whole bunch of wisdom that you didn't have before. Last, when this isn't last, last, but that's what preachers say when they're going to transition. Take me a little while to untangle this knot. Don't worry, we'll get there. This story uh, is to be believed. It is not just to be known. What he said to us in verse 25 was that our problem was not ignorance. Our problem was unbelief. He did not say how foolish and slow of heart to understand all that is written. He said, you're slow to believe it. Church, even when you know God's story, it can't help you until you believe it. And to believe it does not mean to say that it's true. It's true. To believe it is to live out of it. It is to act as though this is the narrative that controls your life. To believe it is to say, this is who I am. And this is what gives meaning to my life. This is why I'm here. So this is how I will live. So what you have when you believe it is not a set of hmm, convictions. You have the right views about the right subjects. It's to have a different life. And your life is your best argument. Not your convictions. By this will all men know you're my disciples. That you were right. No, that you love people well. Hardly anybody does that anymore. So what's the story? Man, wouldn't you love to have been on that road? Oh, my goodness. I would have loved to have had a few of my friends walking on that road and to have a stranger come up and just start putting everything together for me again. Yeah, he would take the parts, the stuff I learned in Sunday school, and he would put them into a comprehensive whole. 
I think so that by the time he was done, my heart would be so large. I would say, man, oh man, I can do anything right now, man. I can go through hell with a squirt pistol because that is true and that's who I am and that's where I belong. Can I imagine one of the stories he might have told? There could have been any. There's probably 10, 12 good themes in the Bible. All of them start in Genesis. All of them end in Revelation. All of them run through the prophets. They need the Gospels and go right into Paul's epistles. They are the entire scripture. Let me just give you one version. Is that all right? It will go something like this, even though I'll do it badly. On the road, he may have said something like, people... In the beginning, God created Adam, who is literally humanity. Humanity was made by God and for God and for union with God. And that union was guided by one law. Eat anything you want except that. Adam did exactly what he shouldn't have. Taking his destiny into his own hands, He ate what was forbidden and as a result was expelled from the garden and sent into exile. God would not let him go. God's answer to a universal problem is always a particular person. Noah, Abraham, Moses, and the servant of the Lord in Isaiah's prophecy. It's always one person. And this person is never just an individual. They are always a people. (laughs) Noah are the Semites. Abraham are the tribes. Moses is the nation. And the servant of the Lord is the remnant. God's plan is to take these people and rather than pull them out of this world, to embed them in this world and to live in a way that is different and attractive. His plan is for these people to take upon themselves the suffering and the anxiousness and the fear of the world to endure the world's consequences and call the world back to God. They are a vital link between God and the human race. But it is a hard and high calling. All the while God is forming his union with these people, living amongst these people, he's calling them with laws and promises that belong just to them. Israel's 
problem is that like Adam, she can't obey. She keeps rebelling and resisting, wanting her own way. And so the story of Israel is the story of Adam. It is a people living in exile, longing for an exodus, a way back. How do I get back to the land, to the promise, to the way of life that we used to have in the beginning? The prophet Isaiah speaks of this regularly, where Yahweh says, sons I have raised, but they have rebelled against me. And so from the sole of their foot to the crown of their heads, they are covered with sores. And one can already hear a forecast the language used to describe the people of Israel who has run off into rebellion is the same language that is used to describe the Messiah who would come a few hundred years later. About this time in the journey, these travelers are, are wondering Where's this going to go? Kind of what you're wondering right now. How long is this going to take? Jesus says, now if you'll turn around, you'll see that Israel's entire history was played out in the last few days of my life. You will remember that when I stood before Pilate, it was the chief priests and the rulers that handed me over. Remember, do you remember the charge? It was rebellion. Pilate said, what has this man done wrong? And the crowd said, he is guilty of rebellion, insurrection against the government. You know that I told you to pay to Caesar what belonged to Caesar. I never, in fact, told you to rebel because the government was never your problem. Sin is. So on that day, you remember, they brought before the people a man named Barabbas. And it was their custom to release one person while the other one would be condemned. Do you remember? Yes. And what did the crowd call for? Well, they called for Barabbas. They said, away with Jesus and give us Barabbas. Yet Luke tells us Barabbas himself was in jail for, wait for it, rebellion, insurrection. In other words, the man they wanted released was guilty of the thing I was charged for. Before Israel in that day was not just two persons, the Messiah and Barabbas, it was two paths, two ways of being Israel. One is the way of revolution and violence and destruction. And the other is the way of peace 
and trust and surrender. Do you remember which one they chose? Israel didn't know it, but she was at the crossroads again. And she went that way. I think their eyes are starting to open right here. I think this is where the fire starts. They're putting together this whole narrative and they're starting to see that it leads right to the present moment. Now in a moment of despair, they must be thinking to themselves, where does that leave us? Then the stranger says, you remember the words of the prophet, don't you? And Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgression. He was pierced for our iniquities. Our chastisement was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. In a beautiful transaction, God has taken the consequences of Israel's rebellion and put them onto one person and let Israel go free. Your Messiah was not just a man. He was a scapegoat coming straight out of Moses upon whom the priest conferred the shame of the people, the absence and the estrangement, all those words that you used at the beginning of this message, all of those were put on him while we go free. Can you see why? Once you tell a story like that, you can find yourself, can't you? You hear God saying, friends, all seven miles of your confusion and your anger, your frustration, your lament, all seven miles are being pulled up into the story of one man, Jesus Christ. Your lives have always been hidden with Christ in God. And someday when Christ, who is your life, shall appear, you will see yourself. And you will know that this period that we're in right now, we were always in the presence of the stranger. God was always close even when it seemed he was far away. He was active the whole time. It felt like nothing was happening. And he was taking every word that you used a few moments ago and grafting it up into the story that God is telling. Church of Jesus Christ, it is not a verse here or a promise there or a law here. It is the whole narrative that Jesus is telling us. Have we remembered our narrative? 
You know your Bibles. Do you remember the story? Do you still believe it? Can you still call on it? Does it bring meaning to your life? I try to keep personal things as much as I can out of messages like this, but there was a moment, people, just about a year ago, when our family was going through its dark night of the soul, when my son-in-law sent Jackie, my sister, a text. Those of you not familiar, she was diagnosed a year ago about this time, Holy Week, actually, Monday, Thursday. It was an awful period in our life. She was given six months to live, lived almost exactly six months, and then passed. Early in that journey, we were trying to figure this out, man. We were looking for the promises, the same stuff that you are. We were trying to find some kind of word from God. What is God saying? How did we know that all of a sudden, the text, I got a call one morning from her. She said, Steve, can I send you this text? There's tears in my eyes. Here's what it said. Hey, Jack. I wanted to let you know I've been praying for you ever since I heard. I haven't said anything to you because, well, I didn't know what to say. And actually, I wasn't sure that you knew that I knew yet. Well, I was reading in Ezekiel this morning, of all places. <laughs> That's what I thought. And I wasn't planning to share this with you, and I'm not even sure what it will mean to you, if anything, but I just feel like I'm supposed to tell you this. It's in Ezekiel chapter 11. Some of the Israelites remained in the land and the rest were sent into exile. Everyone who remained in the land thought that those who were in exile were under God's judgment and that God had basically sent them there and left them there. But they were wrong. God went into exile with them. Verse 16 and 17 says, God says, I will be a sanctuary to you in your time of exile. I will gather you back from the nations where you've been scattered and I will give you the land once again. And when I read this, I just cried so hard and I never cry, but I was just so overcome by God's faithfulness to his people. He later says to them, you will be my people and I will be your God. In other words, you will faithfully serve me once again, but it won't be a one-way street because I will be your God, meaning that I will be faithful to you as well. It's a promise back to them once again that he will never stop loving them. Never stop taking care of them. And that he is always and will always be in control. I love the Psalms. But that's more powerful than one verse out of the Psalms. People, that puts my life in a story that is thousands of years old. And when I found it, when we found it, we found us because we found him. Are you there? 
the word of the Lord to College Church this morning is that in this period when things are out of control, they are full well in control. Things are, as you say, unpredictable, but they are not unsafe. This story that Jesus has told is complete, but it isn't finished. It's told again and again every time you get in the presence of someone who understands the whole thing and can help you find your life in it. Oh, my prayer for every one of you is that you will have around you friends and members of our church who have a sense of what God is doing in the world. And in your conversations, as you walk along the way, the scripture, the narrative, the plot of the Bible will be such a big part of that. You will find yourself and your heart will catch fire. Jesus, What would we have done without your word? Please forgive me for every time I thought something else was more important. Every time I chased information and ignored wisdom. Every time I wanted ammunition for another one of my convictions. But my mind was closed to something bigger that was really happening. Oh God, please forgive us. And not just forgive us, light that fire again for the word of the Lord.